Greetings, my name is Mike Grain. It's a pleasure to welcome you to the SCMRC Leadership Podcast, hosted by the University of Arkansas Supply Chain Department and Conversations on Retail. Today, I'm really excited to speak with a couple of industry experts, actually three industry experts in the RFID space. And we're not gonna talk about RFID, how it works, or the fact that it is line of sight, no issues at all. We're gonna talk about a topic called the ID in RFID. Well, what does that mean? That means every RFID tag at retail actually has two pieces of information, the UPC of the product and a unique serial number. Most companies don't really take advantage of that serial number. There's new capability that I think will be very interesting to people on the podcast about how you can use that serialized data for many, many things inside the retail supply chain. Please join me with Myron Burke, Synthel Gounder P, and Jonathan Gregory. And they're going to be talking to us about the ID and RFID. Let's get started. Well, hello, my name is Mike Grain. Welcome to another uh, version of the Retail Supply Chain Initiative. Uh, we are really excited today uh, to talk a little bit about the ID and RFID. And I'm shamelessly stole that from Myron. Myron shared that a little snippet with me a little while ago, uh, probably a month or so ago. He thought we'd never brought it, bring it up again, but he doesn't know when he says something, I typically write it down and come back to it. So be careful, Myron, be careful. So let's go ahead and introduce uh, the the panel that we've got here today, and then uh, I'll kind of a couple of opening comments, and then we're just going to dive into the topic. So, Myron, uh, you want to go ahead and introduce yourself first? Uh, you bet. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, uh, wherever you may be. Uh, Myron Burke. Uh, I spent 26 years with Walmart uh, in emerging technologies, uh, part of the numerous launches of RFID. Um, now have my own company, Divergent Technology Advisors, uh, where I advise businesses on technology integration and strategy. Excellent. Thank you. And you spent quite a bit of time as an operator in Sam's and Walmart as well, including do some, doing some international work in Japan, which is a great segue into Synthel, where are you right now? And why don't you introduce <laughs> yourself and tell me where you are located, my friend? Hey, thanks. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Senthal. I'm the Director of Research and Technology at the RFID Lab at Auburn University uh, here in Japan um, for, for the week, but uh, couldn't miss this event, so I'm here dialing in late, so happy to be here. Uh, been with the lab for uh, uh, about 15, 16 years now. Uh, it's a blur at this point. Uh, been with the lab since 2007. Uh, I have been part of uh, all the major projects that the lab has worked in. Uh, over the years uh, in retail, uh, in food, in aviation, in healthcare, uh, and all those new industries that are coming up. Um, and uh, thanks again for having me. Absolutely. And just a little bit of a, uh, a integration port here. So Myron Burke, you spent at least three years in Japan? Is that we correct? spent uh, just just a hair over three years in Tokyo uh, sure. with a company called Seiyu, uh, which mm -hmm. is owned by Walmart, now owned by Rakuten. Uh, yeah. Rakuten was our online delivery fulfiller at the time, and uh, so we did Bopus and delivery many, many, many years ago. So it's sort of a second life living through some of that. So give him one place that he must eat before he comes back <laughs> home. Come on now, give him <laughs> give oh him some God, touristy stuff. Right. You have to go to Andy's, Andy's in Nishibani, um, uh, seafood, goes to the market every day, buys it. He's a British guy. He owns the upstairs. His wife runs the downstairs. Uh, crab legs with uh, English vinegar is going to be one of the best things on the menu. Uh, they have their okay. own uh, sochu. So, dude, you have to go to Andy's. Okay. So what's, what's, what's hilarious is synthal the lights showing up which basically means you're googling it while he did that That's hilarious. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm making a note of it <laughs> just to make sure my you know I, I can figure everything that happens in this call today but not that you know I can't okay well so, so here's the deal the the train system there when i lived there the train system was incredible you can get anywhere so don't just because it looks like it's a far way away doesn't mean it is so it's not far and the, and the train like literally you'll Take the you can take the subway actually there uh, to Body, and then you'll actually come up uh, right underneath the elevated train in Andes is like a hundred steps from where you come off the train. It's easy. Now that it is a hundred vertical steps, so don't confuse that with. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, gets, oh. gets, gets a chance to work up the appetite. We'll, yeah. we'll sink after this because we could go on, for, on, on food there forever. It's so I want to hear about the karaoke too, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Big box karaoke, man. Any corner in the country. That's hilarious. <laughs> hilarious. All right. I don't oh, know how to segue up that. Say, Mr. Mr. Gregory, you want to go ahead and introduce yourself to segue away from this quickly, please? Sure, sure. Yeah, uh, great to be here. Uh, so yeah, Jonathan Gregory uh, with GS1 US. I have uh, a job that I thoroughly love because I get to support industry and uh, advance RFID standards and adoption use. Um, so I've been with the company about three and a half, almost four years now. And before that was deploying RFID solutions in first in aerospace and then in retail for a total of about 13 years. Uh, so I come into this with, uh, you know, that hands-on uh, program manager experience, as well as even before that, another decade with work with uh, e-commerce and ERP. I worked on the largest, at its time, the largest ERP solution in the world. Um, so, so I come into this with a sense of like the data flows and the processes, as well as kind of the implementation challenges and things that you have to do to, to, to prove out a proof of concept to pilot to roll out those types of things. So very excited to be here. Perfect. Perfect. Well, we're excited to have this conversation as well. We've all been, uh, we, we did a panel a few weeks ago at the Auburn RFID board meeting. And uh, I think many of us, uh, Jonathan, you were not on that panel, but you should have been because you've been in this space about 20 years like the rest of us. So we've been doing this for a long time. One of the things that I, I definitely want to kind of focus on is a little bit, this is a title that Walmart, uh, that Myron came up with when then uh, when we were talking about Walmart a while back, which is the ID of ID in RFID. So ID, RFID stands for radio frequency identification. We often talk about the RF part, no line of sight, quick, oops, I'm so sorry. I have to edit that out later. Um, but you have to, you, you basically have the ability to be able to do things line of sight and you don't have to worry, you know, have to worry about that, all that stuff. But there's a bigger value, which I think is we don't take advantage of is the actual serialization. So before we get into this thing, Jonathan, I'm going to ask you, if you were going to explain to your family, okay. what is the difference between a UPC a G1014 and it's SG10. Now, because the reason I'm saying that is because there are some people out who already get that. Myra's laughing. But if you had to explain it to your family in a way they could understand it, how would you do that? Without their eyes glazing over. Okay. So. Yeah, exactly. Real quick, I'm, I'm laughing because, first of all, you got to get through the four acronyms before you can ever define it. <laughs> <laughs> what you see is kids like, what does that mean? <laughs> My dad sells numbers. Yeah, yeah. That's what saying. yeah. <laughs> PC is a data carrier, right? It is the barcode. It's it's in just one standards lingo. Um, this it, it isn't the number. It is the the carrier of the number, if you will. The UPC holds the G10. Uh, it uh, the, the G10 is the global trade item number. That is the product identifier. Uh, that G10 is made up of a GS1 company prefix, which is licensed, and so as well as what's called an item reference. But what that does is it ensures that each UPC uh, has a unique identity because the company prefix is licensed. So you can go to any one any GS organization. GS1 Japan, for example, or Central is, or, or you know, just France or GS1 US or what, what have you, there are GS1 offices around the world where you can uh, say, all right, I want to I purchase a license for GS1 company prefix. And that gives you a globally unique uh, value that ensures that your products not only are uniquely identified, but also there's a registry where they point back to you. So, so anybody can look up, hey, who, who's, who owns this product? Who, who manufactured it? Oh, this goes back to such and so company. That is the product identifier is the G10. Um, now the SG10, the serialized G10 is the instance or item identifier. So if I wanna uh, distinguish between you know, this shirt and another shirt of the same style color size, for example, they would have the same G10, the same product ID, but they would have a different serial number. And so that gives me, that unlocks that item level visibility, which is uh, really what we're talking about here, right? It's an enormous, uh, turning point really in a, a big unlock for um, all sorts of applications, which I think we'll explore. Yep. So summarizing, 
a UPC identifies the company and the item, and an SG10 it basically does the same thing, but assigns a unique serial number to every single selling unit at the item level, right? So if that Absolutely. shirt that you're That's wearing, right. if there's 10 of them, they all have the same UPC or G1014. They will yep. all have a different SG10. So they will have a UP, UPC and a serial number linked to them. Perfect. That's right. That's right. So, so if I'm out there listening to this, Myron, I'm going, well, so what? What does that do? Because when I think about the way most people use RFID, let's just talk about RFID without the without the um, without the not the the TD barcode portion of this. When I think about how people use that, they use that serialized information that are this SG10 to count the number of unique items I found and go, I just found 50 of these particular items. They all have the same UPC, but they have the different SG10. So update the on hand to be 50. And that's the way they leverage that. They can throw away all that serialized data. I don't need that for anything. Talk to us about why that's an opportunity. That's that's a missed opportunity to take advantage of that unique data from a business perspective. Yeah, I think I think the easiest way to, to, to sort of wrap your head around this is to think about you can pick social security numbers, driver's licenses, or I like to use fingerprints because they're unique and harder to copy. So you put a serial number into an EPC tag, you lock it. You, somebody could go manufacture if they wanted to. You could do a photograph of a, a fingerprint and, and do some things with that. But it's difficult. It takes a lot of energy to do that. Mm -hmm. But as, as we have unique fingerprints, um, the correlation to hey, I'm going to read a bunch of serial numbers on RFID tags coming into my business environment, warehouse, back room, front of store, POS, walking out the exit. So I collect all these fingerprints. It's like the FBI having a database of fingerprints. And then all of a sudden saying, oh, at the end of the month, we're just going to throw everything we collected away. So anybody who is a bad actor that you might find the residual fingerprint on and can compare to your database, you just said, you know what, that database really isn't important to me. So think of any product that could have a action happen upon it, whether it gets pulled off the shelf for store use, it gets thrown away by somebody who's just pissed off at a decision their manager made and said, I'll show you and throw a case of Cokes in the, in the dumpster somebody who walks out the front door with it from a theft perspective, or there's shrink of a different format that says, hey, I miscounted you know, six cases of product A as product B when I was doing my, my, my data entry uh, or editing a field, I fat fingered something. Um, but I'm gonna throw all that serial number information in a way that says, I now have no historical view to go back and look at what happened. And I think that's what the serialization, regardless of the data carrier format, gives you is the ability to know this can of Coke versus that can of Coke. And then what actions has have happened to that can of Coke? And it's a, it's a term we came up with years ago, Mike, uh, of state and status of an item at a unique item attribute level. Uh, to understand, if you, if you gave an electronics example, this was one I used a lot was, if I pull a TV out of a box to put it on a shelf as a display item, that's still in my inventory as a count of one. But I'll probably throw the box away or may keep the box in the back room because a year from now when I change out those electronics displays, I'm going to sell that product at a discounted cost, discounted retail, let me say. Um, so if I'm doing a, an online um, availability offering to my clients and I get down to one, well, that one is my display item. I, I don't want to sell that one if I've got more on order because then I've got to open another one and put it on display. So being able to say this serial number is the display, I want to block the sale or the uh, inventory adjustment on that serial number so no one can take that out of my inventory in any way. So when I get to, in essence, one, what I'm showing online is zero. So my online inventory is zero, is one minus zero, or zero minus zero plus one, but I don't show that one because I don't want to sell that. And so that's where it has financial implications and service implications to customers, because if they think you have one, you show up and it's a display, they're like, well, I don't want a display. Why didn't you tell me that? Yeah. 
You know, I think the other the other example we've given before is when a customer returns something that typically comes back into inventory. So if I've returned it because it doesn't work and it's going back into claims, now I've got two TVs, one's hanging on a, on a display, which is not for available for sale. The other one's sitting in the claims department because we think there's something wrong with it. My on hand would show two, but really I have zero available for sale. So Correct. you're saying <clears throat> leveraging that unique serial number tied to a, a product can actually provide it an inventory state, in other words. It, it does. And, and this concept of state and status gets really big, really fast yeah. because it's based off of the amount of inventory I have, but where is that? Um, and what is the availability or the status of that inventory? Um, one of the big things we learned uh, years ago was, you know, an average shop trip, say it's, let's say it's 35 minutes. Well, if somebody picks up that product, call it the TV, puts it in their cart, walks around with it, that's still in my physical inventory till they go through point of sale. Mm -hmm. But it's not available to sell to somebody else. It's committed to a customer in the store and will be for 35 minutes. So when that becomes comes off the shelf and starts moving around in a virtual cart, I want to show my online. I want to take one down because I can't sell that one twice. The same thing if someone puts it in their cart online, I want to take it down from the mm -hmm. viewable inventory. If they pay for it, but they're going to pick it up later, now I want to make sure I've taken it down and I reserve that serial number for Mr. Michael Grain because that's going to sit on the shelf until an associate comes and gets it. And I don't know how long that might be. So I don't want to double sell Mike Grain's TV because yeah. I've already sold it once. So, yeah. you know, there, there's a really complex world created with the omni-channel, if we can still use that term, environment and not understanding the state and status of inventories and how you deal with that in real time. Yep. Perfect. I have a question, uh, with, you know, with both of you, Mike and Maran being involved in retail for such a long time, um, you know, we're talking about ID, we're talking about state and status now that, you know, we have this unique ID that is part of SG10. But before this became, you know, even an option that we are, you know, talking about today, how was state and status handled retail? Was that an option at all? It was, <laughs> it, it really wasn't. Uh, no, it wasn't an option. It was something we coined out of work <clears throat> on annual inventories working the the TV display example was one of the real uh, drivers of sort of coining that term of a state and status strategy, you know, gosh, probably like in 2009, um, because you, you, you had to go look at it. And when you're doing, you know, if you've worked with a, a Washington or any of those inventory services group, they'll put stickers and tickets on things that they've counted and you'll have a, a pre-count ticket for a display say, hey, I'm going to put this in a pre-count, count all these in advance, or I'll have a do not inventory ticket. Well, sometimes when you post audit that, you'll find out, oh, we put a DNI on something that should have been pre-counted, or we didn't pre-count this, or somebody actually counted it twice. And so there was a lot of human error because if you did the pre-counts, but I was doing the physical count, we didn't talk, I may come by and count all those displays, not knowing you've already counted them. So there all the data synthesis from that type of observational interaction happened after the inventory work was done. And then you had to go back and spend 24 hours auditing it, auditing it and reconciling it. It's called a reconciliation process. So what we're trying to do is say, hey, let's put the audit and reconciliation into the actual data flow. Uh, and if I see that serial number from two different sources, I can know that's been double counted at two different time and date stamps. Then if you put geolocation into it, you can know it's geolocation, login ID to user device. I can say, oh, that came off two different computers at two different times on the same day. You know, and, and we, we influenced our inventory. So, so adding this use case to receiving uh, choke points between, is it a transportation problem? Like is somebody pilfering my trucks? Do I have a DC in, DC out problem? Do I have a store in, store out problem? I can find out where my discrepancies are happening and then go investigate where the problem process is with yep. this state and status theory. And I get visibility to what has sold and walked out the front of the store. So now I can look at true walkout shrink versus paper shrink or process shrink. Then if somebody brings something back, I know, hey, did we sell that? 
at the store? Did we sell that at this company? Did that come from a different company? Um, is it returned sellable? I'll put it back into inventory immediately. Is it claims? As Mike was talking about, it goes to the back room and it's defective so I can block that from future sales. So if I read that on the sales floor or at POS, I can send an alert to say, hey, this is a, a non-sellable item. Pull it and take it back to the floor. Now I can measure performance metrics on how long it takes to do that. You can go as deep as you want. Uh, right now we're still on level one, which is inventory accuracy. But if you throw away that data and don't run the serial number through your systems and store that, you lose the ability to do all of these extended use cases that deliver extreme value from a tag that you're already paying for just to get a count. Yep. And that's where the leverage of this technology comes in. And, and whether it become a 2D barcode and the new digital link standard with Sunrise 2027, which allows you to have a serial number and a barcode that is the same serial number in the EPC. So I don't have to read it at POS. I can actually scan it at POS and say, oh, that serial numbered product, whether it's a barcode or an EPC, was scanned at POS. So I know it was sold. So now I can reconcile both from the human readable and the RF readable. Uh, so we've been, you know, that standard is a big unlock for this state and status capabilities across the GS1 standard from, you know, case and case or pallet, case, interpack, item, all the way through that level, uh, having that digital link capability to the, the 2D barcode. So question, uh, because it uh, kind of pulled it all together. Yeah, just to build on that, Synthal, um, state and status, didn't become a high priority until you decided to fix everybody's on hands. Cause when your inventory was 50% accurate, you really didn't need to <laughs> on hand a stat and status because they're so screwed up. Anyway, we were just guessing and putting buffers in and all that kind of stuff. Now we've got our inventories closer to hundred percent. I won't say hundred percent, but closer to hundred percent. Now, suddenly I'm down to, I've got two TVs. Are they really available for sale or not? So that's what this piece has become. Jonathan, I want to switch to you real quick because I think this is while this is this is not a GS1 question, you've also been spending quite a bit of time on the whole claims process, right? And so leveraging that serialized data is a potential unlock for claims elimination, or at least, you know, be able to resolve those claims issues, right? Because the old days, I, sh I shipped you 100. Well, I only got 50. Well, I, I shipped you 100 and back and forth, back and forth. How could potentially people use this extended SG-10 information to discuss, debate, or have evidence that says a claim is a legitimate claim or it's not? Uh, and Mike, just so you know, my internet connection is now unstable, so you cut out and gone, but I got the end of your question, so I'm going to okay. get you. Uh, but you claims compliance uh, and, and the leveraging of item level uh, uh, serialized data within claims compliance, is that correct? Correct. Correct. Okay. So how can you use SG-10 information to help reduce the claims between a supplier and a retailer? Gotcha. Uh, so, you know, the prior conversation was very interesting. I'd like to start with a certain observation and carry it forward into this if I could. Um, so what Myron was talking about was the value of uh, serialized data, right? And, and there are multiple points of value. One of, one of the more kind of basic observations is that I can barcode scan a UPC barcode five times, the same thing, and I can misrepresent accidentally or on purpose that I have five of these items instead of just one, mm -hmm. right? Whereas a serialized barcode or uh, RFID <clears throat> is, going to, is going to give me, no, there's no chance of overcounting, right? Uh, and so, and the same is true we've seen in, uh, in factory settings where somebody is uh, placing items, let's say t-shirts or something into a case or carton to ship. And there've been observations about barcode scanning of those items as they flow into that carton, right? And that sometimes the individual, if it's getting close to noon and the truck's at the door and we need to get moving, they'll scan the same barcode because you'll see the timestamp, right? Barco, 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 you know, right away. Okay, mm -hmm. this person was just getting it out the door. And what we've seen is that uh, there's a significant labor savings simply by having an RFID reader scan those. Or if you don't want to go with the RFID reader, to Myron's point, there are, you, know, you could use a 2D barcode that uh, leverages, gives you that item level uh, information, that serialized data, uh, so that I know exactly what global, globally unique 
identity of each item within each case carton. That's really interesting because when I do that, that's an unlock for claims compliance. So now the, the factory can report to the brand owner, say, hey, these are the specific items that you should be able to expect in this case carton. That's a big unlock. That, that is an unlock at many levels, both operationally, uh, simply being able to read those tags at line speed as they flow through. Hey, I read all the tags that they reported. That's helpful. Um, but also from a claims perspective, oh, we didn't receive all the items. Okay, well, here are the serialized items that I reported sending to you. Can you tell me you know, which one of these you did not receive, have not read? Oh, you know what? Now we did find them. That's yeah. interesting, right? Yeah. And so what we're doing is we're systematizing something that's a very laborious and time-intensive and uh, kind of painful process uh, in that context. Yeah. Well, you've got proof. I mean, when I was with P&G and Myron was with Walmart, I shipped you 20. Well, I only got 10. Well, I shipped you 20. I mean, we have no data to basically say what we usually end up doing is say, fine, we'll just cut it in half and I'll, I'll pay you, a, 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 you know, the money on the claims of that. Now I have the ability to say, no, here are the 20 unique serial numbers I put in that box. You go scan your system somewhere. And if you've got any of these 20, you got them. I don't know what happened to your receiving process, but you got them or you it, didn't get them. One or the other. You know, Mike, there's a, there's an interesting step behind that, that Jonathan was talking about that, that starts to get unlocked with this as well, which is if you can show what I shipped and what you received match then you start to unlock visibility into another black box, which is PO substitutions or mm -hmm. approved short shipped authorizations that don't get keyed back into SAP and the enterprise systems because it's an email from account rep to buyer or buyer to account rep. And so we've seen some things with the PO substitution where it's like, oh, I ordered a hundred green shirts, assorted small, medium, and large. You ship me 75 green and 25 blue. Yes, I shipped those because two weeks ago, buyer Betty, and I'm nobody named Betty in particular, just random name, but buyer Betty said she would rather us get the hundred units. So they approved 25 via email. We mm -hmm. stuck them in there to meet the must arrive by date. So yep. as you see pressure on these other metrics, like must arrive by date and it ship in full and different things like that, you see a lot of process decision exceptions that don't always get rekeyed into the system. The PO gets approved for uh, a substitution, but we don't go edit the PO because that triggers a lot of other paperwork in the enterprise platform. And we just want to get the inventory there to serve the customer, all the right goals. But because of the way systems work, it creates other opportunities that, you know, we don't know how many times that approval is being given to modify a PO without the right entry points. Yep. Yep. Great point. And, and I would just add to that, that, you know, you, you highlight another point is that say gray market tracking. So by having serialized uh, data, I can now say, oh, this is interesting. This item, I shipped it to this distributor, but I found it in this new market, uh, right? And so, uh, so that's another unlock. Uh, it, again, regardless of the data carrier, regardless if it's RFID or barcode based, and you know, we'll talk later potentially about Sunrise 2027 and the, and the advent of 2D barcodes where consumers are using say, QR codes to... to investigate to look at, you know, look up product information. And that's a, a rich data source of both yeah. uh, for gray market and as, as well as product authenticity. Yep. Yeah, and, and there is a lot of projects, you know, that are happening at, you know, a lot of brands and a lot of suppliers to address this problem, right? You know, whether it is gray market counterfeiting <laughs> and they get stood up as traceability projects independent of RFID. And at some point they all realize hey, we have this thing called RFID on all of our products and that has a unique ID that's already part of the item, right? So why are we building something from scratch, right? And uh, having two unique IDs while, you know, we're struggling to make use of one. Uh, and that's a, pretty much a common theme that we are seeing in some of the recent, um, you know, deployments with RFID is as these deployments grow and mature, we're seeing, you know, a group that's working on traceability for, you know, a number of use cases, you know, come into uh, the RFID project who is doing RFID primarily for inventory accuracy, 
and they're using the uniqueness in the RFID more as a requirement yeah. so that they can differentiate tags when they're reading them. But then they they realize that they have each other and uh, we're seeing a lot more collaboration uh, in in a lot of uh, areas of the spine. So it's so, very encouraging. So, so Santal, just throwing out a number. Let's just say there's 100 RFID implementations at retail, okay? 100, I'm sure there's many more, but let's just say there's 100. How many of them are actually leveraging the serialized data versus really just throwing away that serialized data and use it to be a counting machine. I, I'm in, and I don't want to share any confidential information about what you know, because you know a lot more about what's going on in the industry, but is the industry starting to take advantage of this unique data source or is it still just, I'm just using it to get my own hands right? So majority of them are, there are a few deployments who have had um, traceability as part of their foundational use case. Uh, that have used it from day one. Uh, there are even brands who have generated these IDs and tracked them through the supply chain, but that's more of an exception than norm at this point. Uh, okay. They have pretty much everyone that you know has adopted RFID scale at this point has started with inventory accuracy uh, as the primary metric, as we all know. And when we look at inventory accuracy, to Myron's point earlier, there are, you know, even if they wanted to, you know, make use of these uh, uniqueness, the systems that they had didn't support a lot of these. You know, the concept of uh, state didn't exist, right? The concept of uniqueness didn't exist. So they were all, uh, I think, trying to solve the inventory accuracy, which is a burning problem. So they all took, you know, this rich data of, I have these hundred unique numbers, but my current system can only handle things at a quantity level. So I'm going to compress them as 100 units rather than 100 unique units and plug it into an existing system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot more work needs to happen now that you know this data is available is you know in going now and building those systems. So we're seeing a lot more of that happening now that inventory is being addressed as they think about second order use cases in retail. Uh, but um, it's moving in the right direction, but not as fast as it should be. Well, one more question on this to, for all three of you, and then I want to get into the Sunrise 2027 opportunity. My sense is legacy systems. That's a big, broad term, right? SAP systems, MRP systems. Jonathan, even the traditional EDI platforms that we have today don't do a real good job of handling that additional lower level of detail, which is the serialized. Is that... Do you guys think that that's going to be one of the major stumbling blocks to finally, I mean, we, we can certainly do some pilots, but if you want to plug this into a platform of moving product throughout the supply chain, uh, those systems don't have that data in it. How big of a barrier is that? Yeah, I, I think would, that's probably the biggest. Say, oh, go ahead, Sento. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. Japan, I think that's Japan first. I got to get to bed. (laughs) So so I I think that's probably the biggest barrier at this point, especially for uh, anyone operating at scale. Um, Everybody understands the value behind it. Everybody sees the, you know, um, the use cases that could be enabled. Uh, If we could trace this uniquely, not only at a given point, but across the supply chain. But if we look at all of our systems right now, they're all built to, you know, manage things at a quantity level, yeah. um, you know, at a single point, and more importantly, as the data flows through the supply chain, right? So we are not even uh, close. So a lot of these systems are being built at this point, mm-hmm. uh, but I think that's where, um, you know, the improvement in technology, the availability of, you know, computing and, um, you know, resources that we are seeing in the industry is helping us, you know, catch up. Yep. Jonathan? Yeah, I would just add that, yeah, I agree with you, Santal. Uh, it, it requires middleware, right? It requires this, this new software entity that's between all the data, what's happening in reality that your, say, RFID readers are, are reading, and these corporate systems that, that don't operate at a, typically don't operate at a serialized level. So that middleware tends to, you know, you have to have these strategic decisions that you make. Well, how much business logic am I placing in my middleware? 
uh, you know, what is that line between uh, operational logic uh, versus, you know, business core business logic? And am I diverting or, or have a divergence between kind of the strategy of my middleware and the strategy of my core systems? Mm. But then that also seeps into, like you, you mentioned EDI, it seeps into how do I communicate with my trade partners, mm-hmm. right? Well, if I'm, if, I'm, if I'm operating at a product level, not an item level, then obviously my trade my EDI transaction or, or other communications are going to operate at items levels, right, as well, or you know, product levels. Um, so, so there's that element there. Um, so the, the sharing layer is, is one of the things we talked about claims compliance earlier. That's, that's one of those you know, opportunities and barriers to overcome because that requires more than one party. Like, so a lot of RFID solutions start in the sales floor or, or in, the, in the store because that's self-contained. Right. You can control that environment and you can very easily, you know, pull out these use cases and value cases. But you start sharing data with trade partners. Well, that requires more coordination and, and therefore tends to lag behind the other adoption use cases. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think the I think the, the broader complexity behind this, Mike, is, you know, when you get into ERP and WMS systems as well, that you know they are holistically once a day batch programs in some cases that are brilliantly designed twice a day, you know, 12 hour shift type <laughs> scenarios that say, and, and, and I think we, we overuse the word real time in these scenarios mm-hmm. uh, because I'm not going to go change a ma- my massive WMS or ERP deployment that's just been put in. And, and I think maybe one company has a plug-in for some of this sort of real time serialized data stuff out there today, but as retailers adopt it, those big systems will evolve and have those capabilities. And, and we need to be better prepared to describe the functional use cases that need to be designed into those. Because years ago, when you were running shipping and, th- and, and things like, you, you know, it was the old yellow pad that you started with and it became a, a form. And then we digitized that form and scanned it into computers and, and optical disk storage and things. So we'll, we'll, that, that cycle is not going to change. We'll continue to evolve in this. But I think using those things as a what I'd call a crutch or an excuse to say this is why we shouldn't do it. Well, those systems won't be designed optimally until you start having a robust set of how would you change your business data flows using real-time data and edge-based middleware and firmware to make decision logic to get that product to the customer better, faster, or maybe even you could sell an out-of-stock to a customer in the store at the shelf and have it dropped shipped from the manufacturer's warehouse to their home and not make them come back to the store at all and give them a really great experience because you took care of an out-of-stock situation and got it to their house in 48 hours or whatever it was in a meaningful term. That's that's a use case that really needs to be expanded and explored um, to capture the relevant information because now it's not B2B, it's not P&G to Walmart. In your example earlier, it's, it's a Walmart it's P&G to a Walmart customer at that customer's home. So now P&G needs different information, which now gives them the ability to get some of that customer shopper information and do follow-up marketing things as well, uh, which enriches the whole data suite and the lifetime value proposition to a brand. Mm, yep. Awesome. Well, we're going to transition to one last topic. I mean, we can spend all day talking about this stuff, but Synthel's got to go to bed. Um, <laughs> so, so let's let so Synthel for years, we have talked about the SG10 being pure with no what I would call intelligent information in it. So it's got a UPC and it's got a serial number, but we don't want to assign. Uh, any kind of intelligence to that serial number. We want it to be a unique serial number. A lot of people have tried to embed, hey, can I put a date in there? Can I put this in there? Can I put an attribute in there for that specific product? Maybe it's when does this product get outdated? Or what is the DOT number of that tire? Or what is the MEI number? I always say that wrong, of that cell phone, et cetera. I believe we have an unlock between, I think, with what Auburn and GS1 are working on, which is, hey, we might be able to, with this thing called EPC Plus, and maybe it's a linkage to Sunrise 2027, putting some additional intelligence into an RFID tag so I don't have to go back to a database for that attribute. So 
Walk us through that. May I may have just blended two projects together. And I'm, if so, I'm sorry. Maybe Jonathan's a whole nother podcast about 2027. But walk us through what, what you guys are thinking and what the industry looks like in terms of getting that information at RFID so you can actually look at attribute data. Sure, Mike. So um, I think, you know, there are, you know, a lot of products that we are tagging right now that don't have anything other than a G10, you know. So for those, you know, adding uh, SG, a serial SG10. number. SG10, yeah, right? So, yeah. Pre-RFID, all they had was a G10. Oh, G10, right? so got if you, it, okay. If, if, you t- if you took a pair of denim, all they had was a, you know, G10, you know, yep. so adding a serial number to it and making an SG10, you know, that's the best thing that could happen to the pair of denim. But there is, you know, when you move beyond apparel, when you move into new product categories, there are, you know, additional, um, you know, sometimes serialized information that are part of those products that exist already. So, for example, using your example of DOT number for tires or mm-hmm. IMEA numbers for cell phones, those have been, you know, used to uniquely identify those products even before SG10, you know, became relevant to those products for various other use cases. So, I think one of the conversations we have been having for the past 10 years is how do we bring this together, right? You know, we have, we're creating a serial number. Um, that is part of SG10 that is required to make RFID work. But then we have this whole lot of other information that is critical to the product, but exists in its own world uh, and might not be readily accessible, um, you know, where, when it is needed. So I think where we are having the conversations at this point is trying to understand, is there value in adding uh, that additional information to be part of the SG10 itself. So mm-hmm. when you're reading the SG10, would it make sense to know, or is there value in knowing the IME number at that point? Is there value in knowing the DOT number at that point, right? And in use cases where that makes sense, I think um, a lot of effort that has been put out by GS1 in, uh, in, you know, in updating the data standard uh, that they released, I think it was a month ago, I think, uh, enables that, clarifies that, and has been building a lot of awareness and education around it. So I think there's a lot more to come, but I'll, I'll let Jonathan add, you know, some more details to where we are and where we'll be headed. Yeah, thanks, Santhal. Yeah, it's such a great topic. Uh, so yeah, the TDS 2.0, the tag data standard, uh, basically, which governs how data is structured in an RFID tag, right? That was updated August 2022. And what it allows you to do is to add any, what's called, we call it an application identifier, right? So a, an application identifier could be a batch lot. It could be a date, like an expir- expiration date or packed on date. It could be a net weight, it could be a country of origin. Right. Any it, there's a whole library of AIs, and so what you can do is, you can now add that data much more easily than you could have done in the past to an RFID tag, and you can search on it as well. So what you can do is say, okay, like in a food uh, setting, like a you know food service uh, retail grocery setting, you could say, okay, I'm looking for all the tags here that expire tomorrow. Everybody who's expiring tomorrow, raise your hand. Right, and only those tags that meet that criteria. Will, re- will respond back to you, right? So that's there's a lot of operational efficiencies that this brings. And you think about in the apparel and general merchandise space, like health and beauty items, will have a batch lot and expiry. So you know, how do I manage these things so that I make sure that I'm not, you know, putting onto the sales floor something that you know somebody's not supposed to purchase. Hmm. Um, and then another point is like the country of origin. That that actually has uh, interest as it relates to managing customs and tariffs. So if I source from one country uh, and, and ship to another, then, then it, it might be more expensive than if I can prove that, no, no, I sourced from this other country. Um, so so it, it is a, a really exciting new development. I think that the food and pharma spaces are the, are the kind of the most urgent, you know, need users, if you will, of this new uh, tag data standard, but it definitely has applicability in the AGM space as well. Awesome. Synthel, from your perspective, I cannot do what he just described in a current 96-bit tag, right? We've got to keep the SG10 in bar. So what, what is it from an ARC perspective or a tag perspective? What are going to be the physical requirements of the tag to be able to enable that to happen? 
So the most fundamental thing that you know is needed to make that happen is we need a chip that can hold more data than 96 bits, right? Mm-hmm. So, and I think that is becoming more of a reality, um, where with enough um, interest from uh, industries beyond apparel, uh, we are seeing solution providers uh, taking that seriously, uh, because the last time they had a higher memory. chip that was you know feasible for any retail application was you know 6 7 8 years ago and they've not had a lot of innovation in that space but with use cases being uh, uh, you know requiring these higher memory tags and gs1 working on on all those standards that make those uh, adoptions easier uh, that's becoming a reality so probably in the next year or two we'll see that becoming an option where we'll have chips that can hold more data and once that becomes available then there are going to be tags that are built using those chips and yeah. once that's done we from a performance standpoint will make sure that those tags uh, have uh, the same performance as the tags that we are using currently mm-hmm. in retail so that they don't um, you know interfere with the current execution or the expectations of performance and then once they meet the requirement we'll we'll put it on the list and then people can choose one versus the other based on their use case and needs and they should be good to go yeah and just to clarify if if i have no interest in this t, you know tag data standards 2.0 and this extended data for my use case the tags and the chips etc will for, that i'm using today won't go away that capability yeah. still exists only if you want to take advantage some of this other stuff. Well guys, we're at the end of the podcast. I want to give you guys all kind of a 30 second wrap up any any final thoughts that you've got and we'll start with Myron. Uh yeah, my my final thoughts would be is um you know, whether you're looking at new tag data standards or you're looking at inventory accuracy or or any point in between is don't don't just do what everybody else is doing because they're doing it. um really take the time to put us at least a small team together to go into your business and understand what data do we need where do we need it what problem is it solving and with what speed and frequency do we need that right uh because you can build in some capabilities and some cost or some some maybe some performance challenges that <clears throat> can limit you depending on what type of systems and data infrastructure you have um uh, to do truly real time Uh, and so i think you really got to step back and think about it and put some things on paper with some decision logic and say what gets us in the game what drives value for our company first and then where can we actually eliminate problems at the source versus eliminate the symptoms of a problem and, and i think that with the the id part uh, of a serialized inventory aspect is uh massively powerful to an organization if you really take the time to understand what it can do for your business uh, again i compare it to social security numbers with people or an fbi biometric database with 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 profiling criminals or 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 bad actors in the world um it really gives you some some unique perspective awesome thank you myron senthal Uh, I'll like come out and start right which is uh, it all uh, at the end of the day comes down to the use case it's not you know technology in search of a problem um you know i think we have done that with rfid where we have identified inventory accuracy asked the use case and you know used rfid to solve it now i think it's time to rethink it again now that we have a unique id that is more of an afterthought at this point you know now understanding that is available but not using it for the sake of using it but trying to understand what does it enable what can we do with it and what needs to happen you know for 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 that to become a reality and bringing everybody into the conversation not within your own company but all your partners whether it is you know retailers suppliers brand owners technology providers standards bodies and putting uh, everybody set together and creating a roadmap of this is what we need this is the data this is the value we can get out of it and forming a strategy so that we can uh, make the best use of it rather than it just becoming another poc that you know makes a pretty uh, slide deck 
Okay, well, we've, we've had a chance to hear from uh, a lot of folks on their closing comments. Uh, Jonathan, just want to give you a, a chance, anything that we didn't cover or anything you want to make sure the uh, audience is aware of? Yeah, thanks, Mike. Uh, so I just wanted to highlight that standards drive interoperability and interoperability drives business agility. Uh, to think of standards as a, another form of infrastructure, just like we use highways and, uh, you know, online, you know, broadband and and phone systems and all that, these are commerce standards. So why wouldn't you want to be connected into that system of standards that connects you with others in community and uh, is maintained as well? Uh, and to that end, I'd also, my second and final point would be uh, to focus on connections. So uh, starting within your organization uh, to be well connected with the different organizational silos and interests within uh, the organization is talked about, you know, RFID solutions have to work for everybody who touches them. Uh, so taking that into account, uh, having good, uh, a cross-functional mindset there, and then not only inside your organization, but then think about your industry and your supply chain. How might uh, an RFID solution uh, uh, relate to that? How are the standards being used across your specific uh, set of trade partners? Mm -hmm. Then finally, across the entirety of the industry. And that's where GS1US can be helpful in providing connections, uh, basically, uh, you know, work groups and discussion groups and other types of forums for the entirety of industry to come together. So, yeah, those are my final comments for you, Mike. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Senthal. Uh, I know you uh, you get the f farthest traveled award uh, to attend a podcast all the way over in Japan. Thank you for your time, Myron, as always. Uh, and then Jonathan, uh, great comments, great summary close. I hope this has been helpful about the whole idea of ID and RFID. And uh, we just uh, thank you for your time today and look forward to hearing another podcast. I hope you enjoyed that podcast about the ID and RFID, many features, many capability, which is a key unlock of leveraging that serialized data. One of those that were mentioned in the podcast was the ability to leverage RFID in the food part of the business, to use it for aged inventory, for product rotation, for markdowns and some things like that. Join us next time as Adam Anderson, Jonathan Gregory and myself talk about this topic, about leveraging the actual RFID technology in the food area. Look forward to talking to you then.